0: It's, it's time dust. for the Bible to read. We, we don't, we don't really know for sure what is and what is not. Oh, 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 Holy ghost, God, baby, let's God, blast him like a sponge. Ghost, As friends, it's time for the Bible, Bible. <laughs> to oh. read. Welcome to The Bible Geek, and uh, I must confess to being that geek, Robert M. Price, Bob Price, anything but late for pizza. Um, see, I uh, just wanted to uh, connect with you about the the Patreon revolution. Uh, as you know, I recently uh, started, or Carol, the technical brains of the outfit, started up a Patreon page. Uh, for me in my various endeavors, and uh, it, it, uh, it's a little frustrating in that she works full-time uh, at the elementary school nearby, and uh, she's doing great stuff there, but her job keeps her from devoting the time she'd like to spend uh, building and managing Tim Robert M. Price. But during her spring break, she was able to drag the thing into existence, as Rush says. We're hoping the donations will eventually generate enough to pay us both a living wage so that we can get more content out to you. That would really make a difference because there is so much to do for both of us. Uh, the more I have to do uh, technical and clerical stuff, uh, the more my writing and podcasting, etc., suffer. And uh, it's just uh, an enormous help to uh, have Carol take care of all manner of things for which she has a great knack. And she uh, is going to have a little more involvement than that because uh, I've mentioned before uh, she and I both have been hosting Heretics Anonymous discussion groups in our home now actually for decades. Uh, They're freewheeling discussion groups of including people with various, uh, ideas and perspectives. Generally, we try to stick to, uh, topics dealing with religion, uh, ethics, philosophy. Uh, we try not to get into political debates. I mean, they're fine, uh, in their own place, but that place is almost every place. And we, uh, need, uh, somewhere to be able to talk about these, uh, more, uh, eternal issues. And, um. Uh, as uh, as Heidegger said, we do a lot of uh, calculative thinking, but not too much meditative thinking, and so we started Heretics Anonymous as a place to do that, and we would like to start having a version of that via a Google Hangout. Which, of course, I'm too inept to know how to do, but she is the tech wizard around here. Uh, And then, eventually, we have this crazy uh, dream of uh, taking heretics on the road. Uh, We've occasionally had very gracious Bible geek donors uh, pay our way to see them, visit them, and and talk. And we would like to... uh, try to do that uh, to uh, have people who are interested in the idea of heretics and may want a kind of a jump start uh, have us come out there and address a group lead a discussion on the topic of your choice and and so on but again you know that costs time and money and maybe you can help us out with that if you're interested in that you know, uh, given that it's Patreon, certain rules apply. Uh, donors can pledge uh, one dollar up to any old amount per month to support uh, the the work I'm doing. You're not just supporting me, but you're helping to enable the f- the free market of ideas. Right? Uh, there's a lot of ideas you don't really hear either from religious conventional believers or from Is there such a thing as mainstream atheists? But you do hear them here. Now, I uh, don't uh, teach anymore. When I've tried to get uh, teaching positions, I find out pretty rapidly that uh, I got a couple of huge strikes against me. Uh, One is, of course, I'm a heretic. I'm not a theist. and. You can well imagine seminaries aren't that interested. But even a lot of regular so-called secular schools aren't either because they know they'd get a lot of uh, complaints from nervous parents and all that stuff. I could tell you some hilarious stories about how that used to happen in Mount Olive College. Uh, And on the other hand, uh, in uh, most of secular academia, you pretty much have to toe a certain political line, and it permeates everything, and I I just uh, can't play that game. So I much prefer teaching, if you can call it that, through my writings and through the Bible Geek. But of course, that uh, doesn't pay hardly anything until, of course, the Patreon breakthrough. Uh, I've always had... uh, many loyal Bible geek listeners who have helped me out greatly in tight spots. And this is a way of sort of making that a, a system and trying to attain a more reliable uh, income stream. Uh, it's uh it's a uh, great fun, but sure would be more so if we didn't have certain worries. You can go to patreoncom slash Robert M. Price to check the whole thing out. And, and I would like to take a minute to uh, run down the uh, the honor roll of generous Patreon patrons. That's not a pun, right? Uh, and uh, this is from, I guess, uh, March 1st to April 10th. Uh, and uh, just to give a shout out to these folks and let you know it's catching on. The very first one on the list is a mysterious entity known as 666. Uh, Could it be literal? I don't know. But as uh, Char Majitofsky once told me at the Jesus Seminar, their money's as green as anybody else's. Anyhow, then there's A. Brown, uh, Alan Hampshire, Arthur Klim, uh, Brian Broom, Cameron Spears why am I thinking of romper room here? And I'm holding up the mirror. Uh, Carrie Polacek, Chris Duncan, Chris Ely, Chris Scott, Christopher. O, and, and I really love this one. Corpsey, the Ewok. And uh, that's a name you don't hear every day. Uh, Dan Harida, uh, Dana Chalice, Derek Yoder, Darren Griffin, David, a Gann, David Barretto. David C. Bruce David Lind David Miller David Wilson Dennis R. Lecker Derwin Emanuel a lot of Bible names here including Demas Rodriguez Don E. Stevens Don Gwyn, Douglas Struthers Dusty Kretzinger Sometimes it's not that I have trouble pronouncing the names, it's that I am having trouble seeing the darn screen. Eric Kamer, Francis Prevas, Frank Ove Glomset, The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy, a.k.a. David Kirtley, Jeffrey Tola, Heath Anderson, Ian, Ian Brown, Ian Marsman, Jake Shelton, Jared Nuzolillo, uh, Jeremy Lovelock, Jim Stites. I hope I got that right again. I can't quite see it well enough. Uh, yeah, I'll get some new glasses soon. Uh, Jim Weaver, John D. Taylor, Jonathan Howard, Joshua DeWald, an old higher critical student of mine, a great one. Justin Kendall, Kevin Smithy, uh, Mark E. Chubick, uh Matush Mucha, I think that's right. Uh, uh, Matt Carl, Michael, presumably the archangel, M- Michael I Goodpastor, Michael Johnson, Mike Baker, Nick Eversett, uh, Obadiah King, whom I met out at the Portland Lovecraft Film Festival last time, uh, Pedro Bonilla, another great higher critical student. Oh, Dan Harida was also. Yeah, uh, Peter Coote, Phil, Phil the Thrill. Uh, Philip Malaby, Randall Gazroger Zabo, again, I'm sorry if I've said that wrong, uh, Ryan Fedua, um, Ryan McNabb, Scoop Jai, Sean Hanley, Shlomo Dror, uh Thomas Ross, Undercover Agnostic, uh, Vicki Casey, Wayne Kirk, William W. Brown, and there's room for plenty more. Uh thank you so much my friends for your your support and for continuing to send in these uh ultra nifty questions here. So, uh with that let's say we uh, get to some of them and uh there there is of course a rather long list but I'm not complaining. So, uh Ooh, I thought... Do I have this? Yeah. This is from John M. Greetings to the Bible geek from frozen upstate New York. This is kind of old, but it's probably still a glacier up there. My question is less to do with dissecting and interpreting biblical text than it is to do with how Christians generally talk about Jesus. In the French philosopher Gilles Deleuze's essay Nietzsche and Saint Paul, Lawrence and John of Patmos, he writes: "John of Patmos deals with cosmic terror and death, whereas the Gospel and Christ deal with human and spiritual love." <laughs> Christ invented a religion of love, a practice, a, a way of living, and not a belief, eh? Uh, Whereas the apocalypse brings a religion of power, a belief, a terrible manner of judging, instead of the gift of Christ, an infinite debt. And he goes on to write, This bearer of glad tidings Christ is doubled by the or, you know has a double in the black Saint Paul, who keeps Christ on the cross, ceaselessly leading him back to it, making him rise from the dead, displacing the center of gravity toward eternal life. What are your thoughts on this, and why do Christians tend to fixate on the death and resurrection of Christ and to talk less about the things he supposedly said and taught? This has been my experience, at least. Yeah, uh, John, that is quite common. Uh, (laughs) I forget who it was now. I think it was some evangelical writer who was involved with the what is it, The Declaration of Evangelical Social Concern in the late 70s who I think I could be wrong but who cares really he said that uh, you look at the Nicene Creed and there's pretty much zip about the teachings of Jesus it's all the teachings about Jesus Christology, soteriology and so on and there's a real divide in Protestantism uh, I, well outside of that too but it's a real good example you've got the magisterial reformation the Lutherans, the Calvin Calvinists uh, uh, reformed churches and all that for whom it's all the Pauline epistles in fact uh, the great evangelical uh, neo-evangelical writer Edward J. Carnell said that evangelicals do have a canon within the canon that you use the epistles as the basis on which to interpret the Gospels, and within the epistles you use Romans and Galatians as the yardstick for interpreting the rest of them. Well, of course that he's uh, that's what I like about Carnell. Uh he just uh, doesn't hesitate to say things the way they are uh in in Protestantism. And of course he happened to uh to accept this. He was pretty blunt about some other stuff that he didn't. Uh but um yeah, that's right. It's like the the stuff about Christ, the pre existent Son of God, crucified, raised from the dead, believe on him to be saved by the grace and all that stuff. Uh, and not that much the teaching of Jesus. Uh, not that uh, any evangelical rejects it or means to. I think a lot of it gets uh, interpreted away when it gets a little too uncomfortable. But in principle, they think, oh, no, no, that's, that's fine. I want to become more Christ-like. And, uh, of course, the way to do that would be to look at the way Christ is portrayed and the things he says. So I want to be fair about that. It's not an either-or thing. But then you've got groups like the uh, the Mennonites, the Brethren, the the Radical Reformation, where they they you know differed on Christology, uh, how divine is Christ, and all that stuff. But I think most of them were pretty orthodox, quote unquote. And yet, for them, there was nothing if you weren't following the Sermon on the Mount, for example, to the letter. Uh, No matter where the chips fell, voluntary poverty, uh, non-resistance, all that kind of thing. And uh, they're pretty gutsy about it and still are. And uh, so, yeah, there is a huge divide. Why is this? Well, of course, I don't know. I'm no mind reader, but it seems to me that the obvious answer uh, is that uh, people are anxious and worried uh, about death. If they weren't, uh, who knows if they'd even be religious. You kind of had to be in the ancient medieval world because religion was the glue that held your whole culture together. That's less so now. And uh, perhaps it's more important than ever to get that ticket to heaven. Most Protestants go coach. Uh, and uh, so uh, the teachings of Jesus, oh yeah, that's fine, as I've already tried to explain. But uh, the certainly the emphasis is on as you hear in the Gospels, right? The guy asked Jesus, what must I do to be saved? Also, Paul is asked that, right? Uh, and uh, that's where the action is, because if you can't get that one settled, uh, then uh, the rest of it almost doesn't matter, people figure. I think a lot of people realize that uh, the things said uh, by way of concrete morality in the New Testament are really not that bizarre or unexpected, not even that distinctive, uh, and uh, nor are they really supposed to be. It's not that radical and that discontinuous with uh, ordinary common sense. Uh, so they they wouldn't be nihilistic and so forth if they uh, didn't have the Gospels to keep them in line. Uh, but um, so that's kind of taken for granted. But uh, what is the deal with uh After death. And I think that's why the the theology and the Paulinism is in there, because, especially with Protestantism, because you've been told that you can't really live the way uh, the Old Testament tells you though that, they don't really read it that carefully, uh, or the way Jesus in the Gospels tells you to do, which I think would surprise Jesus quite a lot, right? But uh, try your best. You're not going to be able to be perfect. God demands perfection, and so then you're into soteriology. How do you get saved if you can't deserve it? And so then the, the everything really kind of comes from that, the whole... Arian-Athanasian controversy of the 4th century had to do with how salvation works. Would the Savior have to be God, or merely kind of quasi-divine to make salvation work? Uh, it's, uh, it's not just an idle concept. So I think that's what's going on there, people's uh, existential interest in believing they know how to be saved, and that entails the theology. Now, if you thought that one was uh, a long one, uh, the long answer, the long answer was required, that ain't nothing compared to Eric Clover, who asks in a mere three lines, I was wondering if you can talk a little bit about the Dead Sea Scrolls and their impact, if any, on the legitimacy of the Bible. Also, can you give a brief explanation of how the Bible was put together and who wrote it? I don't think I can give a brief explanation uh, on that, but let me take a crack at it. The Dead Sea Scrolls were an object of scholarly obsession for, for decades, and to some degree they still are. Uh, these uh, texts discovered in uh, the uh, the caves by the Dead Sea... Seemed to come from the Essenes or the Zealots or any one of a number of other sectarian baptizing groups that we kind of knew about already from Philo, Josephus, uh, Pliny the Elder, and so on. And uh, this seemed to give at least one of these groups its own voice. Finally, we we could see how they were organized into a monastic existence. Um, though with uh, hangers on that lived uh, in towns we could see they had an apocalyptic world view, they were expecting the end of the age to come soon they were getting ready for the battle with the Kittim, uh, the heathen, and uh That uh, God would, at the right moment, send the angelic armies down to join the men of the covenant uh, in uh, slaying and defeating the hordes of Belial that would spew up from Earth's center and the whole shebang. And God would baptize the human race in spirit, that is, wind and fire. And uh, this would be salvation for the righteous getting uh, fried for the wicked, and uh, there was also predestination, astrology, messianic expectation uh, that uh, could involve uh, the archangel Michael, the patriarch Melchizedek, a messiah son of David, a messiah son of Aaron, and uh, possibly the return of the martyred teacher of righteousness, who was the kind of the second founder of whatever the sect was, that uh, a reformer who uh, taught a unique way of reading Scripture so that it seemed to point to the sect and uh, events in its life. And a lot of these things, as you can tell already— are very much like New Testament Christianity. They shared uh, resources. Uh, No one called his possessions his own, like in the book of Acts. Uh, There was a lot of talk about the light and darkness, the children of light, the children of darkness, and so on. Very, uh, very similar to the New Testament. And when you got into the teacher of righteousness, as I say, it's a bit ambiguous, but whoever this was, and, and no names are used, He seemed to have been a a kind of a Jesus-like rabbi uh, who was put to death by the conspiracies of the Jerusalem priesthood and uh, who apparently would come back uh, for revenge and deliverance one day soon. Again, it's not that clear because there's no systematic teaching on it, but you certainly are in the same neighborhood as a lot of the New Testament, and this made it very clear. Interesting to scholars, uh, some of whom suggested, well, all right, these are the Essenes it's written a hundred years or so before in New Testament times, but still in the ballpark for some purposes. Uh, others uh, said, I think it's a little closer than that. Uh, maybe the teacher of righteousness was a guy named John the Baptist or Jesus." or James the Just, and and these debates have returned uh, in full force uh, toward the end of the 90s and on into now with writings by uh, Robert Eisenman, Barbara Thiering, and others. All very fascinating, Uh, but there's no way to absolutely know uh, what the reference is. If Eisenman is right, and I think he is, then you, you do have a really interesting situation because the Dead Sea Scrolls might be the library of the Jerusalem Church of James. Boy, does that require a lot of rethinking, and uh, it's quite plausible. But you can't really know. it's You have to juggle speculations. Now, what does that have to do with the reliability of the Bible? Well, apologists often say that, you see, all the stuff you hear from village atheists about how the Bible has been copied and recopied and translated and edited over the centuries, uh, it's like a game of telephone, and there's really no way to to know how it originally read. Well, uh, that isn't a bad analogy for the process of oral tradition right uh, and for much earlier editions of the bible you know way back there the j and e sources before there was a pentateuch and so on Uh, But uh, they say the Bible hasn't been miscopied and now we can prove that because whereas before the earliest Hebrew manuscripts of the Bible were from the 11th century A.D. or C.E. Common Era, these go back at least a thousand years before then. Uh, That's true. Actually some scholars thought that they were medieval Karyite texts, but uh, most think uh, I think it's really kind of a settled question now that they really are extremely old and uh, and if you look and and most of the books of the Old Testament are represented there by pretty good manuscripts I mean there's some of them that are fragments but most are whole and there are even three copies of Isaiah one of them complete and that is a pretty long book and if you compare this to the Masoretic text it's not that different looks like a passage or two has been left out by accident. But you don't have wholesale distortion like some people like to claim. Again, that, that concern is only slightly misplaced because the real issue is, can you trace changes that uh, look like they took place on the way to the uh, the published edition of which we have these copies? Uh, there. It also shows us, however, that uh, there were different variant types of text even that far back, because uh, we have the Greek Septuagint translation of the Hebrew Bible, and it was translated way back there, contemporary, more or less, with the Dead Sea Scrolls, and often there are different readings. Uh, in, in the Septuagint, which means that they're working from Hebrew texts that were different in certain repeating ways from our uh, Hebrew texts. And then you have the Samaritan Pentateuch in a kindred Hebrew dialect, not the whole Bible but the first five books. And that's generally the same, but there are, um, in the from one manuscript of the Samaritan Pentateuch to the next, certain uh, constants that indicate yet noticeable but relatively slight different text forms. When did they diverge from one another? Well, that's another whole issue. But uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls, by providing much earlier. Hebrew manuscripts of the Old Testament do put to rest that at least during the that thousand years or so between the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Masoretic texts, uh, that you didn't have wholesale alteration uh, of the text. And in the same way with the various translations, you know, we've got fragments of uh, an old, of the old Syriac uh, and which is, a, I think, northern Aramaic dialect. And uh, we've got uh, the old Latin, and then Jerome's Latin Vulgate, and fragments of uh, two or three other Jewish Greek translations. And they're sort of different in wording, as you'd expect, some of them being uh, translations, after all. Right? And the, they're never one-to-one uh, word-by-word equivalences, but they're not outrageously different. And, and where they are, what's interesting is, it again, like the Old Latin and the Old Syriac have a few New Testament variations that seem to be interesting survivals from earlier Greek manuscripts. Like one, uh, the Old Syriac, uh, I forget the name or number of it, but it says that in the genealogy of Matthew, that uh, Joseph begat Jesus with no backpedaling. And uh, in the Old Latin, when Jesus is uh, baptized, the heavenly voice just quotes Psalm 22 You are my son, today I have begotten you. And uh, oh, in the Old Latin, Pilate says to the crowd, Who do you want me to release? Uh, Jesus Barabbas, or Jesus called Christ. (laughs) Holy mackerel. So there's some interesting stuff, but again, they're the kind of exceptions that prove the rule. And uh, so that's about, uh, I guess, all I've got time to say on that one. Who wrote the Bible? We don't know. But we do know that with both the Old and the New Testaments, there were competing parties and factions and sects who told their own stories and told the same original story in various different ways. And, of course, you're rewriting history to legitimate the position and the beliefs you hold. And so there was was competition there, like so you can compare the Deuteronomic history, the books of Joshua through 2 Kings, with the books of Chronicles, as I do in Holy Fable. Of course, plenty of people have done this before. Uh, And you can see a definite pattern of redaction, of editorial changes to feather a different nest than the Deuteronomic history did. You can compare the Gospels and see the redactional slants of the various evangelists. And of course, there are pretty significant differences. And You can look at different Pauline epistles, so-called, and see uh, that uh, this one's pro-gnostic, that one's against it, and so on and so forth. We don't really know of any authors' names. The ones that appear uh, tagged on to these individual writings in uh, traditional Bibles are simply uh, traditional guesswork. Uh, Scribes and editors, we're not even sure whom, Though in the New Testament, I think it's Polycarp of Smyrna, in the second century, they they uh, just pasted those names on, making educated guesses based on the contents. And, of course, as with everything they said, they tended to say that this was all church tradition. But you can kind of tell it's not. It's innovation. Doing the same kind of thing we do, trying to determine who wrote it. And often all you can do is to say, well, this comes from the Paulinist camp. This one from the Ebionites or the Nazareans. This is more Gnostic, etc. As to the actual name, too late to tell don't know why, I, I have to admit. I mean, there's some anonymous works, like the Gospels and the Epistle to the Hebrews. Uh, why no name? Harnack made a good argument that uh, uh, the name of the writer to the Hebrews was omitted because it was a woman's name, and Later on in the church, they didn't feel women should teach, so it wasn't by Priscilla anymore. How about Paul? But even there, the name doesn't appear in the text. Of course, the big problem is pseudepigraphy or pseudonymity with writers taking the name of famous apostles, prophets, scribes, etc. And uh, that's just done constantly outside the canon, right? The the pseudepigraph of the Old Testament, uh, 1st, 2nd, 3rd Enoch 1st, 2nd, 3rd Baruch uh, the the apocalypse of Elijah of Zephaniah, etc. Well, these guys didn't actually write it uh, but they knew that the uh, real authors knew they'd never get a hearing if they put the gospel according to Biff, uh the apocalypse of Chad and stuff like that and so the names aren't on them uh, and the same is true with various epistles that actually do feature the name of Paul but you can kind of tell they're not written by the same guy and so on uh, How they form the canon? Well, um, uh, in general, certain people decided that the Old Testament... Well, with the Old Testament, it was a gradual accumulation of writings. We know less about that. But um, uh, the theory I kind of like is that the Bible, as we know it was... The Old Testament was put together uh, in Ptolemaic Egypt pretty late in the day. Uh, and uh, that the, uh, the the translation of the Septuagint was the creation uh, of the final form of these books, including the Pentateuch. It wasn't just the translation; it was a canonical compilation. Uh, there was a more conservative list in uh, in the Holy Land among the rabbis. There's, their books are the same as the Protestant Old Testament. Of course, that's where the Protestants got it. Uh, But uh, in the wider Hellenistic world among Greek-speaking Jews, they used the Septuagint, which had about 11 extra books or parts of books. And um, and Catholics and Orthodox Christians use that today. No official Jewish body does. And... um, Again, whoever the Dead Sea Scrolls community were, they had a much bigger bunch of uh, sacred books and kept writing them by way of revelations from heaven as they viewed it. Uh, So the New Testament, uh, the big issue that came about with Marcion of Pontus in the late 1st, early 2nd century was is Christianity really an outgrowth of Judaism, or is it really a new revelation altogether? And Marcion thought the latter was the case, and he said, let's not use the Jewish Bible as a ventriloquist dummy pretending it has cryptic predictions of Jesus. It doesn't. Come on, just read them in context. Uh, but uh, nothing wrong with the Old Testament in particular necessarily uh, but uh, that God is not the God who uh, Jesus said was his father and whom he was revealing to the world well, you know if it was the Old Testament Jehovah there's no revelation necessary he'd been known for a long time no Jesus had a, a new God who didn't create the world uh, who uh, didn't judge or condemn or destroy anybody he was a loving God and uh, on the cross Jesus was buying the freedom of all of the poor creatures of the old Testament God who wanted to be out from under his boot heel. And, uh, and he said, okay, Judaism's got their scripture. They're going to have their Messiah. They have their God, right? That's okay. That's just not us. People often say Marcionism was anti-Semitic. I think the reverse was the case had that view prevailed in Christianity. You wouldn't have had these horrible, pogroms and persecutions of Jews by Christians. Um, Anyway, uh, the Marcionites said, well, of course, the so-called Old Testament is not a Christian scripture, but it wouldn't be a bad idea to have a Christian scripture. And the Marcionites, as far as we know, came up with the first canon, a canon meaning like a measuring stick, an official list. And uh, it was, since they thought Paul was the only faithful disciple of Jesus, or apostle, I should say, uh, later on, right? Not one of the twelve. The twelve were idiots, as the Gospel of Mark portrays them. Uh, They're no guide to what Jesus really meant to teach, but Paul is. Jesus recruited him later after the resurrection, and he got it right. And so the epistles of Paul are the basis of the scripture, along with one gospel, which they didn't call Luke, but it survives in a padded form as the gospel of Luke. Uh, and, uh, that was it. The gospel and the apostle, they call this scripture. And, um, this was catching on like wildfire all over the Mediterranean, and so the emerging Catholic Church decided uh, they would argue against Marcion, and so Justin Martyr did that, Tertullian did it, and others too, but they also pursued the strategy of co-opting the, Marcion, the Marcionite scriptures. But they wanted them read in a way conducive to Catholic thinking and so they they padded out the texts of the epistles with stuff that would domesticate Paul and make him sound less radical and heretical. They wrote the three pastoral epistles, 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus, which certainly changes Paul into a different guy, a Catholic Paul, Uh, and uh, they wrote the book of Acts uh, and added um, epistles supposedly by other apostolic figures, Peter, John, James, Jude, uh, to counterbalance the one-sided Paulinism of Marcionism, and of course they retained the Old Testament. The first uh, one to do this seems to have been Polycarp, who assembled his the, the, the Christian edition of the Greek Septuagint, Old Testament, And the Catholic padded texts, I think he's the one that padded them, of the the New Testament texts, including added Gospels and Epistles. And uh, this would have been about the middle of the second century, fairly early, but it didn't become official for another 200 years, when Athanasius had uh, all the clout in the world because he had won the Christological debate at the Council of Nicaea, and he was a buddy of the Emperor Constantine. And he sent out an Easter encyclical, a letter to all the churches and monasteries, and it said... Okay, from now on, we're using, for the Old Testament, just these 27 books and no others, and it's the 27 we use today. We know from earlier Christian writings that um, they were kind of getting there, but there was debate over whether Jude or 2nd and 3rd John uh, or James or Hebrews should be in there. On the other hand, some people thought the epistle of Barnabas, the shepherd of Hermas, the apocalypse of Peter ought to be in there, and so there was more or less friendly debate over that. In the meantime, Gnostics were writing new Gospels and apocalypses. You can find those in the Nag Hammadi texts. They were discovered in 1945 in Egypt, two years before the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in, in uh, Jordan, I guess it would have been then. And uh, so uh, it still took a while before everybody got on board because we have copies, manuscript copies of New Testaments uh, made after. Athanasius that still have stuff like Barnabas and Hermas in them, so it, it took a while for this to catch on, and uh, uh, so it uh, and eventually it did. There were a couple of, I think, three North African synods around 400 A.D. that um, pretty much settled the issue. Though people did continue copying the others, that's how we still have copies of them. So this is a kind of a lightning summary of the the history of the canon. Boy, I'm uh, embarrassed to even say it's that much, because it is a very uh, complex thing. I would pursue this, if you want, in uh, David Trobisch's great book, The First Edition of the New Testament, and in a classic history of the canon by Hans von Kampenhausen uh, called The Formation of the Christian Bible. Both terrific things. And, uh, okay. Thanks, Eric. I hope that's, uh, not put you to sleep completely or confuse the daylights out of any sane mind. Anyway, Lachlan here. Uh, raised in the absence of a religious education, um, uh, see, but from a nominally Catholic family, I thought Lord of Hosts was a reference to communion wafers. Now that I know what Yahweh Sabayoth means, Yahweh of hosts of armies, I have a very important question. Is it a host or an host when sharing this information with others? It's a... Maybe the King James says this, and the older English would have uh, an N before, uh, you know, an an rather than an A in front of... uh, a word beginning with H, like an historic, but we kind of dropped that. So I would just go with a host. Uh, let's see, I'm going to have to get going here in a minute, but let me just deal with a little bit uh, quick. Um, hmm, uh, who's is this? Oh yeah, okay, Charles Minus he's got three questions one this has to do with moses as you and others have pointed out the strange goings-on in exodus 4 18 through 31 You know, you were a bridegroom of blood to me when Yahweh jumps out of the bushes to try to kill Moses. Holy mackerel, that's got to take the cake for the weirdest passage in the Bible, and there are some weird ones. Uh, It seems to indicate that Moses was not circumcised. If he wasn't circumcised, how did the daughter of Pharaoh or anybody else know that baby Moses was a Jew? They got a pretty clever answer to that in the definitive version of uh, Exodus, namely the Ten Commandments with Chalde and And in that one, I believe they say that uh, the woman knew that uh, the baby was Hebrew because of the cloth in which she was swaddled. And, uh, is it the same as the mantle of Moses later? Same design or the same actual thing in the same way? Superman's costume was made from the uh, red, gold, and blue blankets. Uh, he was nestled uh, in there. Um, uh, let's see. Sorry, I think that th- that's Commissioner Gordon again. Yeah, okay. Um, and uh, they made the suit out of the Kryptonian uh, garments, which explained how come his uh, suit didn't burn up every time he flew through the sun or something, which he often did. Right, um, But I, my guess, and that's, that's plausible, but it doesn't say that in the text, maybe it's taking something for granted, but I kind of think it does suppose that Pharaoh's daughter saw that baby Moses was circumcised. I mean, he would have been. Uh, he was, you know, they didn't uh, throw him into the river before the eighth day, apparently. And uh, that it's just that the story in chapter four doesn't depend upon that tradition. Uh, Exodus is a patchwork of uh, snippets from different sources, and my guess is that the one presumed Moses had been circumcised as an infant and the other didn't, because of the point they want to make uh, about circumcision in in chapter 4. Two, why is it that Elijah is given such preeminence among the Hebrew prophets? For example, he's the one selected to show up in the transfiguration of Christ along with Moses. Other prophets all did some pretty wild stuff. What's so special about this guy? Well, it could be that he was a miracle-working Superman, but uh, Elisha did twice as many miracles as Elijah, and he doesn't show up on the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, What the heck's going on there? Well, I think the answer is that, uh, uh, that Elijah was believed not to have died he was taken up into heaven alive and therefore it was no big deal for him to appear on the mountain of transfiguration with jesus he just sort of came back downstairs and the same with moses Uh, philo and josephus and others attest to the belief among jews in the new testament period that moses hadn't died either he'd been taken up and in fact this i think is a well-founded interpretation of uh of the section in Deuteronomy where it says that uh, uh, angels buried him and nobody to this day knows where. Well, that's pretty much saying nobody buried him. No human hand buried him. He didn't get buried. He was occulted, as they say, with a Muslim hidden imam. He was taken up to heaven alive, and so these guys are available. Of course, Enoch would have been too, but they... I think the reason for Moses and Elijah is they want to have uh, the law and the prophets represented. And when the voice of God says, this is my beloved son, hear him, don't pay that much attention to these other guys. Jesus supersedes them. Three, the Gospel of John. I've seen and heard various discussions about why the Gospel of John omits the baptism of Jesus. But what about the 40-day sojourn in the desert? Not only does the Gospel of John not, not say anything about that, he seems to actively deny that it happened at all. In John one hundred forty three, a couple of days after Jesus, non-baptism, and each day is accounted for. That's right, in John, for first day, next day, next day. The Gospel of John says... Uh, The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. No room for excuses or harmonizing. He seems to plainly state that the desert of the temptations did not happen. Uh, Yeah, Charles, I think you're exactly right. And, uh, of course, the big problem with the baptism, well, two of them... uh, kind of together in the early church was that John was offering a baptism of repentance and forgiveness of sins. What's a nice savior like you doing in a place like this? And uh, Mark has no problem with it, but uh, Luke Matthew and the gospel, according to the Ebionites all embroider and distort it in such a way as to try to take the sting out of it. Um, then uh, John just takes the direct approach and excises the thing, and with no uh, baptism, you don't need and can't have the temptation because the temptation was intended to test out Jesus as he embarks on his ministry. If you're the son of God, prove it. Uh, Is he worthy? Uh, The devil in the synoptics is just doing his job, as he did in the Old Testament, to prove those who were supposed to be the champions of God. But uh, that's out of the question for John, because uh, for him, uh, Christ was the eternal logos and all that. He didn't really become anything, except he became flesh for a while. So there's just no room for either one of them, conceptually, theologically, in the Gospel of John. So he just snips it. Now, he does have John the Baptist baptizing people and one day calling attention to Jesus. Behold, the Lamb of God, the elect of God who takes away the sin of the world. Uh, and yeah, uh, that's, uh, he authenticates Jesus and says, well, this is the guy I was sent out uh, to... Uh, to uh indicate to the crowds the one who told me to come out said the one you see the spirit descend upon and remain on that's the one that's the lamb of god and i've seen it it's him Uh, There's nothing about Jesus getting baptized. It's just for the Gospel of John, the Baptists' movement was just a way of getting a bully pulpit, getting a platform to uh, to tell the huge crowds about uh, Jesus as the Lamb of God, quite different than the other baptism stories. Well, I gotta run. I figured a short geek is better than none though I guess opinions might differ on that. Uh, but uh, again, uh, please take a look at uh, the Patreon page, and I'm going to have a little snippet soon up there from uh, the Gospel of Mark and my Holy Fable book so you can get a little foretaste of it. Thank you for being with me. Uh, thank you for remembering me with your contributions. And even if you're not on Patreon and you'd like to, you know, give me something over PayPal, as usual, that's certainly fine. And if you're not in a position to uh, donate, look, I've never made that uh, requirement. Uh, that's That's not why I'm doing this. So thank you again for being with me on The Bible Geek today, and I'll be seeing you soon. The Bible Geek was recorded by Robert M. Price and produced by John Felix and Serjan Yovanovich. Theme song by John Morris. Visit us at robertmprice.mindvender.com for more info on Robert's projects, purchase Bible Geek merchandise, and click the ever-important Donate button. Send your questions to criticus at aol.com. And be sure to rate and review The Bible Geek on iTunes. Thanks for listening to The Bible Geek. I'm Torn With the Lucky Land you can get lucky just about anywhere.